Welcome everyone to this, the first part of our story and Star Wars seminar. I'm Alistair Stevens, and if you're new to this whole thing, here's how it works. Over the course of the next eight weeks or so, I'm going to take apart both the original and prequel Star Wars trilogies and analyze their story structure. What, at the deepest level, is Star Wars about? What are we to learn? What perspective is offered? And why, ultimately? Has this story spread across, so far, six movies and so far, 28 years, become the most important pop culture artifact of the 20th century? In this lecture, we're going to cover the first movie in the series 1977's Star Wars, but I should note right up front that for the reasons of clarity, if not exactitude, I'm going to refer to this movie as A New Hope, and use the name Star Wars only when I'm talking about the series as a whole, I know it didn't carry that name when it was released, and I know that some of the harder core fans among you prefer not to use it, but here we are. Clarity wins out. Before we get to A New Hope, though, we really need to frame this discussion, state our intent, and discuss what it is that we're not going to do. And that's tricky, because Star Wars is such a cultural phenomenon that we're almost more accustomed to talking about the text than we are to the text itself. I can't think of a single other series, a single other story, in which fan speculation, expanded continuity, and alternate explanations have so permeated mainstream culture. You don't have to be a Star Wars fan, or even a geek of any kind, to know that Imperial Stormtroopers are terrible shots, or to have thought about the ruinous ecological disaster that befell the forest moon of Endor after the second Death Star exploded. Star Wars fan culture, which was, arguably, the root of and inspiration for all modern fan culture, has become mainstream in and of itself. And that, to be clear, is a wonderful thing. I've adored Star Wars for my entire life, for literally as long as I can remember, and I've read more expanded universe novels and spent more hours arguing over minutia than any person should, and I respect deeply the fan culture that surrounds this story. I once, during a memorable train journey, read the entire Jedi Academy trilogy by Kevin J. Anderson in the space of two days. I won't tell you how many hours I spent playing the X-Wing or TIE Fighter or Knights of the Old Republic video games, because Frankly, I still feel a little embarrassed that I wasn't more productive in my teens and in my twenties. I'm a fan of the core universe, I'm a fan of the expanded universe, and I'm a fan of the discussions and debates and arguments and passion that surround Star Wars. The problem, if there is a problem, can be found in the way that fan culture occludes the text itself. This is a rich and deep story, a piece of ambitious and sophisticated world-building, an archetypal, epic narrative. And that's what we're going to study. When we look at these movies, we're not going to look one inch beyond the frame. We're not going to turn to the expanded universe, much of which is now non-canonical anyway, or to the internet message boards, or to behind-the-scenes accounts given by Lucas and others. We're going to study this text in as pure and unembellished a way as we possibly can. It deserves, it has earned that respect. And that's important, because the things that exist outside of the story, of any story, are fundamentally extraneous. They might be interesting, they might be entertaining, they might be thought-provoking or challenging, but they aren't the story itself. We might speculate about that ruinous environmental catastrophe, but it doesn't change the story of Jedi. 
We might be curious about the writing process behind Luke and Leia's relationship, and when exactly it was decided that they were brother and sister, but it doesn't change the kiss that they share in A New Hope. Lucas may have an explanation for why Greedo shoots first in the cantina, but the explanation doesn't matter. It isn't a part of the text. And speaking of Greedo and the cantina, as I covered in the introductory lecture last week, we're not just going to look at these movies in their release order, but we're also going to look at the post-special edition versions. I myself am working from the 2011 Blu-ray release, which is basically the same as the 2015 Digital Collection release. If you're watching the 2004 or 2006 limited edition DVD releases, then there are a few changes, but they're relatively minor. If you're watching the 1997 special edition releases, then there are major changes. And if you're watching the original non-special edition releases, then wow, awesome. I'm not going to talk about the revisions that Lucas has made to the text, except where such discussion might illuminate his original intent. As much as possible, we're going to talk about the Star Wars that George Lucas wants us to see. And that is not to invalidate the discussions that have accompanied these revisions. Many of those discussions are insightful. Many of them have a great deal to say about authorial intent and about our approach to texts as living documents. That discussion is not this discussion. So we're not going to talk about supporting material, we're not going to talk about the expanded universe or DVD extras or the TV shows, or even, in this first instance, about the forthcoming movie, The Force Awakens. We're going to talk about Star Wars. We're going to free ourselves of the halo of commentary and explanation and criticism and fan culture that surrounds it so that we might look at it more clearly. That frees us to interpret the story we're given in whatever way makes sense to us without worrying about flying in the face of convention or abiding by a particular piece of fan dogma. We're embracing the notional death of the author in this seminar. If you have an interpretation that is supported by the text, then it's valid and it's worthy of discussion. And I do mean you. Through these lectures, I'm going to be giving my response and analysis to each of these films in turn, but I also want to hear from you guys. The new lectures will go up every Friday. You can check the link in the show notes for the exact schedule. And then the following Tuesday, we'll watch the movie together and live tweet our thoughts. We also have a forum over at forum.storywonk.com where we can engage in deeper discussions. And if you want to contact me privately with your thoughts and with your feedback, you can do so by email via podcast at storywonk.com. Then, after both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, I will hold a live video stream where we can talk in real time about your thoughts. It's going to be a lot of fun. With that, let's get started. And let's get started with a question, with THE question. What is the story of Star Wars? That, in fact, is probably too broad for the span of this lecture. What, then, is the story of A New Hope? Stories are fundamentally about conflict. The protagonist wants something, they have a goal and they want to achieve it. The antagonist wants something, they too have a goal and want to achieve it. They can't both get what they want, those two goals are mutually exclusive. That combination generates conflict, which generates story. So what then is the conflict of a new hope? What is the fuel that drives this story forward? How does that conflict, whatever it may be, connect to the themes and the philosophies which inform the text? What is it? And what does it mean? This is a much more difficult and complicated question than it may seem, and I've only recently arrived at a satisfactory answer. It may seem striking, may seem baffling, 
that we can be so imprecise about the exact story that is being told in Star Wars. It doesn't appear to be a particularly cryptic text. And yet, we're also accustomed to the movement of the story that I think that we have long since stopped considering what it really means. And ultimately, too, as I hope to show you in the course of this lecture, the real story of A New Hope is more subtle than you might expect. Before we get there, though, let's take a look at what A New Hope isn't. Accounts of Star Wars origin generally cite three inspirations, and Lucas has talked at great length about the ways in which he was influenced by each of these things in turn. First, we have the 20-minute movie reel serials of the mid-century period, then we have the movies of Akira Kurosawa, and finally, the work of Joseph Campbell. And it's tempting, in light of that information, in light of those three inspirations, particularly if you hear Lucas talk about them directly, it's tempting to map A New Hope onto those texts. But that, fundamentally, is a mistake. A New Hope isn't a Republic serial. Lucas draws inspiration from those movie serials of the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, but that's as far as the connection goes. There's almost nothing in A New Hope that echoes the staccato cliffhanger escape rhythm of those serials. What inspirations there are, I would say, can be found in the operatic tone of A New Hope, these larger-than-life characters, these larger-than-life emotions, these larger-than-life challenges, these epic conflicts. Also, I think you can point to the retro-futurist aesthetic, and I think the sense of in medias res entry to a story already underway, as, as evidenced by nothing more eloquently than the episode 4 caption in the opening crawl. Compare the structure and pacing of A New Hope to the actual Flash Gordon remake released in 1980, and you'll see the difference. And that's after taking into account the change that Star Wars, as it was then called, had on Flash Gordon. Compared to Flash Gordon, Star Wars is paced like The Godfather. So it's inspired by, but not a recreation of, a Republic serial. It's also not a Kurosawa samurai movie. Again, there are connections. Some archetypal, such as C-3PO and R2-D2 acting as peasant-class point-of-view characters who bicker and comment upon the action. And there are some stylistic cues too, as seen with Vader's armor, for example. But the pacing is, again, completely different. The focus is completely different. The cinematography and the performances and the narrative intent are all completely different. A New Hope also isn't a hero's journey story. Joseph Campbell influenced a lot of writers and academics with his groundbreaking study of myth, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In that book, he identified a number of surprisingly common elements, narrative elements, in myths from around the world, and derived from those elements a narrative structure, the hero's journey, or monomyth, that had been retold time and time again in different places and in different cultures. Campbell never intended his work to become a template for Hollywood movies, by the way. It was a descriptive, not proscriptive, academic work, but its direct applicability to modern movies was clear, an understanding that would be made manifest by Christopher Vogler in 1992 with the publication of The Writer's Journey. We will talk more about Vogler's work and about the Hero's Journey template, I think, when we reach the prequel trilogy. But while parts of A New Hope, particularly, I admit, in its first half, map very well to monomythic structure, it is by no means a perfect match. 
Most importantly, the monomyth depends upon very specific goals, conflicts, and resolutions, which are all but absent from A New Hope and certainly not the focus of the text. In the monomythic version of A New Hope, the story, the core narrative, would necessarily be the rescue of Leia. The return then to the mundane world with the boon gained by rescuing the princess would ultimately resolve the underlying conflict. That doesn't happen. I'll talk a little later in this lecture about what that structure would look like as well, I think, as offering my own analysis of Lucas's core narrative. For now, though, suffice it to say that Lucas, yes, took inspiration from Campbell as well as from Kurosawa and the Republic serials. But it isn't accurate to say that A New Hope is simply a recreation of any of those forms or even simply a synthesis of the three. I'm going out of my way to emphasize what A New Hope isn't so that we can more productively talk about what it is. A story with deep roots into fertile soil, but a story which is itself unique. A synthesis of epic narrative, of operatic tone, of philosophy, of archetypal characters and conflicts, and heroic action. It's all of those things. It's many more besides. But it isn't just those things. And we fail to appreciate all that it is when we seek to explain it by direct comparison. And while we're talking about the things that A New Hope isn't, let's add one more. A New Hope isn't. Star Wars isn't. Science fiction. Yes, there are spaceships and aliens and droids. No, that doesn't make it science fiction. Science fiction and fantasy are two branches of the great tree of speculative fiction. Horror is another, alternate history is another, fable and parable and magical realism, even fairy tales. Speculative fiction is distinguished from other fiction, naturalistic fiction, in that it doesn't seek to represent the real world as we understand it. Instead, it changes the world to better embody the underlying narrative metaphor. What if, speculative fiction asks, there were dragons? What if there was a wizarding school in the highlands of Scotland? What if a playboy genius built a superhero suit in a cave with a box of scraps? When we tell a story in a world that is definitively not the real world, and that difference between the real and fictional worlds is relevant to the story being told and the themes being explored, then we're writing speculative fiction. Star Wars, clearly speculative fiction. But what separates science fiction and fantasy within the bounds of speculative fiction is its intent with regard to the audience. Our traditional understanding of genre is a mess of intent, of setting, of audience, of convention, of form, and that does no one any good. I have talked at length in other places about the problems with our modern understanding of genre. What really differentiates a sci-fi story from a fantasy story is the intent. If the story seeks to reward the reader intellectually through philosophy, perhaps, or puzzle solving, then it's science fiction. If it seeks to reward the author emotionally through catharsis and wonder and awe and love, then it's a fantasy. That is the difference between, say, a Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court and Diana Gabaldon's Outlander. One is concerned with the intellectual analysis through the medium of narrative, and the other with the rush of romance and adventure. Neither is better than the other, and neither is worse. They just have different intents. A New Hope isn't science fiction because it doesn't primarily seek to engage its audience intellectually, but rather emotionally. Contrast A New Hope with 2001 A Space Odyssey, for example, or with Blade Runner, or with the most common point of comparison for people who don't really understand stories, Star Trek. 
It is vital that we understand at this point that seeking to engage the emotions isn't any cheaper or easier or sillier or less worthy than seeking to engage the intellect. It's just a different thing. A New Hope isn't a fantasy story, strictly speaking, because it's about farm boy heroes and wizards with enchanted swords who break a princess out of an evil fortress and defeat the warlock with magic, though it is all of those things. It is a fantasy story because wizards and enchanted swords and magic speak not to our rational intellectual minds, but to our emotions. That, by the way, is why so much of the expanded universe misses the feel of real, authentic Star Wars. If you try to turn a Star Wars story into a Star Trek story, if you try to turn the fantasy into science fiction, you're left with something that isn't much of either. Star Wars works best when it understands its own essence. I'll say too, though, incidentally and briefly, that Lucas also cites The Lord of the Rings as a major inspiration. I am going to whistle past that, partly because we don't have time for this to turn into Alistair Talks About the Lord of the Rings Radio Hour, and partly because, well, if it was an inspiration, it was a superficial one. And I don't get the feeling that Lucas read The Lord of the Rings very carefully. They do share common DNA going back to myth and saga, but they're facing entirely different directions. Almost none of the themes found in Star Wars can be found with any coherence or consistency in Tolkien's work. In fact, more often than not, the opposite is true. That, my friends, is a conversation for another time. One of the things that makes A New Hope so engaging, and will prove problematic later in the series, is the sense of vast and complicated world-building. Lucas in this first movie is actually the poster child for giving your reader, your audience, less than you think they will need. And that makes the world feel enormous. It is a fantastic achievement and it is key to Star Wars's ongoing success. Let's look at one scene, Luke and Obi-Wan after the rescue from the Tusken Raiders. We begin that scene with Luke saying, no, my father didn't fight in the wars, he was a navigator on a spice freighter. Which wars, you might ask? Oh, the Clone Wars. Will we get more information about them? Nope, not a word. Nor about spice freighters, or what spice is, or what a Jedi Knight is, or how a lightsaber works, or what made the past a more civilized age, or blasters, or the Old Republic, or the rise of the Empire, or the near extinction of the Jedi, the exact mechanics of the Force in two and a half minutes. From the start of that scene to the moment where Obi-Wan triggers the message in R2, we get this rush of evocative world building and very few details. What details we get are emotional, not intellectual. Who was Luke's father? A great pilot like Luke, a cunning warrior, and a good friend. Well, that's great. Was he tall? Was he short? Did he have a rocking 70s mustache? We don't know. We aren't told because those things aren't important. It isn't about an intellectual appreciation of who Luke's father was. It's about an emotional one. Likewise, look at Vader, a young Jedi, a pupil of Obi-Wan, until he turned to evil. In an intellectual story, in a science fiction story, we would be primed by that revelation to ask, well, what is the nature of evil? How did he turn to evil? But here, amidst this space opera, we embrace it emotionally. He turned to capital E evil, because that is what villains do. And it's tough watching A New Hope for the 10th or the 20th or the 50th time to remember what it was like to hear those words for the first time, this entire scene. 
The universe feels so large and Luke so small. And that's exactly how it is supposed to feel. Lucas, despite what he may claim, didn't invoke the Clone Wars here because he hoped someday to tell that story. It was a placeholder, a marker to the broader world beyond. We have made up terms, fantastical proper nouns, and we anchor them emotionally with active verbs. We don't need to know what the Clone Wars were or what a spice freighter is because we know what they were doing. We have a sense of their emotional content. And that's a technique that extends from the very beginning of the movie, the opening crawl, all the way to the end with the medal ceremony inside the ancient Masasi temple on Yavin 4. Does the rebel base in this story need to be inside an ancient temple that has obviously been adapted for its current purpose? No, it does not. But it is because this is a world that continues far beyond the edges of the frame and the running time of the movie. This galaxy far, far away is huge. And that serves three, I think, narrative purposes. The first is simply to give us a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. We are supposed to be impressed. Look at that opening moment when the Star Destroyer sweeps onto the screen. We are pinned to our chairs by the enormity of it, and not just its physical size, though yes, certainly that too, but by the magnitude of the ideas that underpin it. The second purpose of this grand scale is to build a stage large enough for the space opera which will unfold, of magic and mysticism and adventure and, yes, that capital E, evil. The third is to emphasize Luke's irrelevance at the beginning of the film and significance at the end. More on that in due course. So what is A New Hope? I think there's a clear answer, but I have to tell you, it isn't the answer that I was expecting to find. Let's begin by breaking down the story into its component acts and looking carefully at the story we're being told. Luckily, A New Hope is basically two hours long, so we have a simple timetable where we can plot each of the act breaks and consider what they mean. So we begin with C-3PO and R2-D2 escaping Leia's ship and crash landing on Tatooine, then being captured by the Jawas and ultimately sold to Owen. Then we shift our focus to Luke and we stay with him, broadly speaking, as R2 escapes, Luke meets Obi-Wan, he discovers his aunt and uncle are dead, and he decides to go off to Alderaan. We then have the scene at the cantina where we depart Tatooine on the Falcon, Alderaan is destroyed, the Falcon is captured by the Death Star, hijinks ensue, the princess is rescued, Obi-Wan dies. Finally, in the last act, Luke joins the Rebellion, flies the mission against the Death Star, he trusts in the Force, he saves the day, and there's barely enough time for medals before we hit the closing credits. I would argue that you can break this story very roughly into three acts. The exact breaking points between the acts will become more relevant as we discuss what this story really is. But before we get to acts, let's look at the eight 15-minute pieces which make up the story. Eight 15-minute movements. The first 15 minutes are C-3PO and R2-D2 up to the introduction of Luke. And if you have a digital version of the film available, I urge you to go and try this. You can do it also on the DVD or the Blu-ray. It's a little more difficult to scrub through. But if you have an easy means of moving back and forth through the film, I urge you to go and take a look at 15-minute increments through the span of the film. So the first 15 minutes are 3PO and R2. The second 15 minutes take us all the way up to Luke talking to Obi-Wan about his father, that scene I previously mentioned. The third 15 minutes take us all the way to Mos Eisley. The fourth take us to the jump to light speed, the destruction of Alderaan, which takes place almost exactly in the middle of the film. We will talk about the significance of that in due course. 
The next 15 minutes take us all the way to Leia's cell. 15 minutes after that, Obi-Wan's duel with Vader and his death. 15 minutes after that is the launch sequence for the Death Star mission. And then finally, the last segment concludes with the destruction of the Death Star and the very short denouement which wraps up the film. Eight segments plus a very short tacked-on resolution. That is structurally bold. And it isn't a coincidence that the midpoint is the jump to light speed, Alderaan explodes, a great disturbance in the Force sequence. That really is the fulcrum around which the entire story turns. And we'll get into more detail on that in just a few minutes. So I'm inclined to break A New Hope into three acts, rolling the droids only prologue into the first act. Act one takes us from the opening crawl all the way to Moss Eisley. Specifically, I would argue the rise above Moss Eisley with the journey into the city itself acting as the beginning of act two. Act two takes us all the way to the briefing scene right before the Death Star raid and lasts almost an hour. I'm not just picking arbitrarily here either. There are thematic and structural cues that suggest that these are the breaking points in the story. But they also mark Luke's major decisions. These are the turning points. I want to go to Alderaan is the first turning point, the acceptance of the call to adventure in monomythic terms, and I'll join the rebellion is the second. And that's important, because connecting these turning points to Luke's major choices tightens our focus on Luke as our singular protagonist. And that, I think, is the key to understanding what A New Hope is doing and what, I dare say, every other Star Wars movie misses. Let's clarify, at this point, that there isn't one story contained within A New Hope. I'm not looking for the only narrative. I'm looking for the primary narrative, the one that gives the entire story's shape and structure. Let's look at our candidates and figure out what the story would look like if they were the key narrative. Is A New Hope the story of the destruction of the Death Star? Is A New Hope the story of the rescue of the princess? Is A New Hope the story of two droids who are caught up in adventures much larger than they? Well, yes, it's all of those, but if A New Hope were the story of the destruction of the Death Star, say, then we'd expect each of the major anchor scenes, our act breaks, our midpoint, and so on, to relate to that central story. And they don't. The Death Star isn't present in the main narrative until just after the midpoint when the Falcon is captured. If the Death Star were the focus of the story, then we'd expect it to be there from the beginning. We would expect Leia to be captured by it rather than by the Star Destroyer. More importantly, the Death Star isn't itself active. It's just an object, albeit an impressive one. It doesn't have a goal. It can't generate conflict. Is Vader, then, the story? Is he the antagonist that defines our central conflict? Well, that gets us a step closer, I think. He shows up early, he's there to the end, he provides a motive force, he's iconic, he has a clear goal. But narrative isn't about the antagonist. It's about the conflict sparked between the protagonist and the antagonist. And if Vader is our primary antagonist, then we end up with a strange and significant shift of focus. Because if Vader is the antagonist, then the only protagonist who gives the story shape and structure is Leia. And it feels weirdly counterintuitive to make Leia the protagonist of A New Hope. There is something to it. I mean, she's present from the beginning. She provides direct motive force to the first half of the story. She's thematically and mythologically significant and interesting. But she isn't active. She isn't present. And she doesn't ultimately save the day. She does have a story with Vader, but it is part of a greater whole, not the primary narrative 
of A New Hope. Let's shift gears then and look at this question from a new perspective. Let's look at this question intuitively. If you look at Star Wars from a distance and give the first and fastest answer to the question, who is our protagonist, then I would estimate that a solid 90% of you would say Luke. Some might say Han, some might say R2-D2, but most would agree it's obviously Luke, right? But if it's Luke, then who is our antagonist? What conflict defines this story? Where do we begin? Where do we end? Where does the journey take us? Feel free to pause this lecture if you want to mull over the alternatives, and certainly get in touch if you have any alternative ideas. But for me, the underlying narrative of A New Hope came into focus because of a line that has always, always bothered me. For as long as I can remember, I have been frustrated by one line in A New Hope. During the Death Star assault meeting, General Dodonna gives the briefing about the Death Star's weakness. No defense against one-man fighters. Skim the surface. The exhaust port is only two meters wide. Everyone bristles. Every pilot in the room looks uneasy. Han rolls his eyes. Even Leia looks uncomfortable. But in that moment, when everyone is thinking, wow, this is impossible, Luke is all, sure, cool, two meters. Wedge complains that it's impossible even for a computer. And Luke replies, eh. I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. Notice there, too, by the way, that we're getting more of that brilliant and evocative world building constructed around an active verb that keeps us oriented. We don't know what womp rats are or what a T-16 is, but we do know that Luke was bullseyeing them. But here's the thing. What is the purpose of this exchange? Narratively speaking, this is a classic third act introduction. We have defined our conflict. We know what we have to do. The odds are overwhelming and the hope of victory is slim. This is the moment when the story lays out the structure for the rest of the running time. Why, at this moment, when we are emphasizing the difficulty and the danger of the strike against the Death Star, is Luke leaning back in his chair and taking bets on whether or not he can do it blindfolded? Well, okay, he says, but I'm going to fly my X-Wing left-handed. It is the only way I can be satisfied. So this line actively works against the tension of the moment. We already know Luke's an exceptional pilot and foreshadowing his eventual victory here just drains tension and drama from the scene. So what are we doing? Well, we're introducing the third act and we're introducing the final conflict just as I said but we're not introducing the third act that we seem to be introducing because it isn't ultimately about the Death Star. It's about Luke. Look at the climax of the movie. Vader attacks, Han returns to save the day, Luke destroys the Death Star. It is spectacular. But if we're supposed to see Han's return as the defining moment that turns the tide of the battle, then why are we spending so much time setting up Luke personally versus the Death Star? Let me break that down a little further. If Han's return is the actual climax of the story, if it is the eucatastrophic intervention that saves the day, then the obstacle that is blocking Luke's victory must be Vader, the problem that is resolved by Han's intervention, not the size of the target or the difficulty of the shot, which actually have nothing to do with Han's intervention. But Vader doesn't seem to be actually impeding Luke. Sure, he might kill him before he gets to the end of the trench, but we're not paying attention to that threat. Luke isn't paying attention to that threat. In the final moment, it's the shot that matters. So what changes? What is the fulcrum around which the plot turns? If Han's intervention and the removal of Vader as an active presence in the story, and certainly as a threat against Luke, is 
unimportant if those things are part of a subplot but not part of the main narrative conflict, then what is the decision that Luke makes that defines that main narrative conflict? Well, there's only one decision. He turns off his targeting computer. He trusts the Force. That is the moment, I would argue, that defines our entire story. And it's a moment which ripples back through the narrative, forcing us to reappraise what we've seen, because underneath the action and the drama and the enormity and the grandeur and the brilliance of A New Hope, there's a much quieter story taking place. And that's the story that gives this film its shape. A New Hope is about Luke Skywalker and his relationship with the Force. Technically speaking, this is an internal antagonist story, where the antagonist blocking Luke from achieving his goal is actually himself. He wants to go, to leave, to be a hero, lest we forget, he's planning on signing up with the Imperial Academy at the beginning of the movie, so desperate is he to have excitement and adventure. He wants to take action, to prove his power and skill, to be an agent of change, and to be recognized for those things. He decides he wants to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like his father, concepts of which he has just been made aware, because that's the adventure. So let's look at our act breaks. Do they speak to Luke's story? Well, yes, they really do. The first significant beat is the scene at Obi-Wan's home, where Luke learns of the Force and wields his lightsaber for the first time. That, in a very real sense, is our inciting incident. The first act break is the moment at which Luke decides to give up his life on Tatooine, not to stay behind and bury his aunt and uncle or undertake any other menial domestic kind of life, but rather to race off to adventure, to go to Alderaan with Obi-Wan. The second act break is the death of Obi-Wan, and Luke's realization that the Force is more dangerous and more powerful than he ever expected. And that midpoint that we discussed earlier, that blended scene, the jump to light speed over Tatooine, the destruction of Alderaan, well, neither of those actually are the midpoint. The midpoint is the scene immediately following those moments. It's the moment in which Obi-Wan feels the death of Alderaan through the Force, and Luke practices with the remote and feels the Force for the first time. As Obi-Wan says, he's taken his first step into a larger world. That is our midpoint. That is the moment at which everything changes for Luke. It's mirrored, of course, in the other plots, but it's focused, clearly, on Luke. Every structural beat of this story, besides the prologue, <laughs> speaks to Luke's relationship with the Force. First, he learns about it. Then he wants it. Then he begins to experience it. Then he sees how dangerous it is. And then he surrenders himself to it. He lets go and he saves the day. And understanding the story from that perspective actually explains the bothersome line about Womp Rats and T-16s. Luke is, in that moment, proudly trusting to his skill, not the Force. That's the conflict that gets resolved in the trench. He decides to let go of the technology, the skill, the desire to be a hero, the desire simply to take action. And instead he trusts in the Force, and in so doing, achieves the impossible. When he talks about bullseye and womp rats, that is the false confidence that would, I'm sure, have ultimately resulted in him missing the target too, and the rebel base being destroyed. He is not the agent. The Force is the agent, and it acts through him. The Womp Rat line actually is relevant and important because it speaks, albeit subtly, to the central conflict at the heart of A New Hope, Luke's desire to be a hero, and his Jedi nature. 
That takes us to the end of this first lecture. And I know I haven't talked about Han and I haven't talked about Leia or Vader or the grander thematic aspects of this story, but we will have time enough to address each of those topics in the future. I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that the subsequent movies are far less Luke-centric from a narrative and thematic perspective. And I really wanted to take the time in this first lecture to emphasize how important Luke's journey, that simple internal journey is to what Star Wars became. That farm boy who becomes not a hero in the classical sense, not an active agent of change, an embodiment of power, but rather a conduit through which good can be achieved, that is a much more subtle and sophisticated premise than we might immediately imagine. Luke is good because he has the power within him to let go. And that, at the same time, is impressive, narratively sophisticated, and also not the story that you think of when you think of Star Wars. We are going to gather together this coming Tuesday evening, September 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern to watch A New Hope, and we'll talk about it on Twitter. We will be using the hashtag StarWonks, that is S-T-A-R-W-O-N-K-S, and if you want to follow me in advance, then you can find me on Twitter at PaperBullets, P-A-P-E-R-B-U-L-L-E-T-S. We'll break down during that live chat, I'm sure, some of the structural stuff I've been discussing, and we'll also pick up on all the many incidental pleasures of this remarkable, remarkable film. If you have questions and queries and comments and theories or feedback of any kind, then you can email me directly at podcast at storywonk.com, or you can find the conversation already in progress over on forums.storywonk.com. Thank you all so much for listening. It has been a real pleasure undertaking this seminar series and having the opportunity to really apply some narrative craft to this film, this story that I have loved for so long. And I'm discovering more and more as I watch the other films. So we have great discussions ahead of us. If you've made it this far in the lecture, then please consider taking a moment to rate and to review this series on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. New shows have a very small window in which they can make their presence felt. And I would be extremely grateful if you could leave a rating to help other people find the show. And if you don't want to leave a review, then maybe just leave a rating and write in the review space whether Han or Greedo shot first. The link to leave your rating and review is right there in the show notes accompanying this podcast. Guys, thank you all so much. I will see you on Tuesday for what is sure to be a spirited and full live tweet. And the next lecture will be released next Friday. Until then, may the force be with you.